mesmo sentido. Welcome back to the Africa is a Country podcast. My name is William Shorky and you are listening to Africa is a Country's destination for analysis and interviews on global events from an African perspective as well as African events from a left perspective. So if you've been paying attention to what is ongoing in South Africa, you might know that the country is currently being gripped by a devastating energy crisis with homes and businesses suffering blackouts for up to 16 hours a day, which makes my life pretty hard and a lot of people's lives hard as well. The failure of the country's national power utility, ESCOM, to generate sufficient supply of electricity to meet demand has been ongoing since 2007 and is now in its worst period. Many reasons are preferred for why this predicament arose, prominent among them being the widespread corruption connected to the ruling African National Congress's system of patronage. Successive leaders have been brought in to the utility to steer the sinking ship ashore, but all of them have veered adrift, and the latest failure belongs to Andre de Reiter, who resigned from ESCOM in December last year and then stepped down with immediate effect after conducting an explosive interview on South African television that revealed the extent of looting in the organization. De Reiter, whose beginnings were in the private sector, was widely viewed as a steady hand at the wheel, and during his tenure, a consensus rose in favor of ESCOM's complete privatization, which would be finalizing a process inaugurated in 1983 when the apartheid government corporatized ESCOM. But is this the only way? Can there be a public pathway towards rebuilding ESCOM's capacity and decarbonizing South Africa's energy future? Joining me on the program today is Andile Zulu, who is a regular contributor to Africa as a Country. He's a writer, he's published for many outlets, including the Mail and Guardian, and is now the Energy Democracy Officer at the Alternative Information Development Center. Andile talks us through what possible alternatives to ESCOM's future may be, how we can keep the lights on, how we can democratize the organization, but most importantly, how we can set it on a path that protects South Africa's environment and avoids the worst of climate change. So here's Andile, do enjoy. Andile, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's a pleasure to, to finally have you on. Thanks for having me, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So I wanna, I wanna talk about a lot of your most recent writing, which is about probably the most hot button topic in South Africa right now, which is our mm. national power utility ESCOM and the implementation of rolling blackouts, people are experiencing up to 16 hours a day with no power. And could you just for an outsider, try and explain exactly what's happening. What is load shedding? How is load shedding in the way the government tries to sell it uh, a pull to swallow for a, for a greater good? Why is it, why is it exactly implemented for, for what purposes? Mm. So to break it down simply at a technical level, what load shedding is, is, a solution that the National Electricity Utility, ESCOM, um, implements when there is a shortage of supply. So essentially load shedding occurs when the available amount of energy that's produced by ESCOM cannot meet the demand um, that businesses, ordinary citizens, and different structures need in order to be able to uh, run their daily operations. So what happens is that ESCOM essentially rotates supply by switching off power in certain areas and distributing it to different areas, switching off in certain areas and then and vice versa. So it's a way in which ESCOM ensures that they have a certain of, of apply, uh, supply of electricity readily available, but um, it cannot meet the demand until they have to rotate supply. So on a um, supply. So on one technical level, load shedding is a way in which ESCOM uh, is trying to deal with the scarcity of energy and specifically electricity in the country. However, on a larger level, 
in terms of the political economy of load shedding. What it results from is a series of bad policy choices, or rather specifically, short-sighted policy choices that the African National Congress, which has been ruling since 96, has made. And the three things that are at the heart of the load shedding crisis, the three main reasons why we have a scarcity of supply is due to the attempts to corporatize the ESCOM, uh, to corporatize ESCOM the debts that ESCOM has accrued over the past 20 years, and then finally, the pervasive corruption within government that, had, that has also terrorized ESCOM um, in the past several years uh, uh, quite intensely. So on the one hand, it's a technical problem of limited supply and growing demand. On a larger level, term, in terms of the political economy behind it, it results from a series of short-sighted policy choices. And you could even be more specific and say that load shedding is a result of the African National Congress abandoning its, abandoning its relatively egalitarian principles and approaches to how to run an economy and how to govern a society, and the ANC being committed to neoliberal economics to varying degrees um, over the past 27 years. Um, and this has brought us to the, uh, to the situation where we are now, where load shedding amplifies the various socioeconomic issues which have plagued the country. So, for example, small businesses have been, um, rightfully so, complaining about the inability to keep up with uh, load shedding as it results in them not being able to continue their operations. It forces small businesses to let go of members of their staff. But it also amplifies other issues such as unemployment in terms of load shedding costing up to billions in the economy and, you know, putting more pressure on an already, an already stagnating trajectory in terms of economic growth. Um, and it also amplifies issues of legitimacy in terms of how increasingly ordinary South Africans can trust their government to satisfy their basic needs. They can trust their government to solve um, problems, and they can't trust their government to implement the solutions that they end up proposing to these crises. So it also poses an issue of legitimacy in terms of, well, if the government isn't able to give me water, if they aren't able to provide adequate healthcare and education, and if they aren't able to keep the lights on, then what do I have to gain from my support and my respect of the government? So in many ways, I think load shedding is the national crisis that will define South Africa's future in the upcoming years. Our ability to respond to this crisis, I think, is going to set a certain path um, for the country, um, depending on the solutions that we adopt and the approaches that we take. Mm. That's very helpful. And I'm curious to know how... ESCOM's corporatization unfolded? What exactly that mm. consisted? So structurally, how is ESCOM designed that it has more elements of a private company than a mm. public university? And what is the connection between its corporatization and its decreasing ability to generate sufficient electricity to meet supply because I think a lot of people who maybe have been sort of half paying attention to South Africa over last 25-30 years ESCOM least in the early days of the new South Africa was one of the big success stories of one international yeah. awards widely celebrated for being this public utility that undertook a tremendous task, which was to electrify the vast, vast majority of the black population, which before apartheid was systemically deprived of electricity. So how did that all happen? Um, happened so quickly and, and devastatingly. Um, yeah, I think what's very fascinating about ESCOM is that 
it is a very good way to understand neoliberalism. And on the one hand, we can approach neoliberalism as a set of economic practices. For example, austerity, enforcing labor market flexibility to give more power to employers, um, reducing taxes on the rich and on corporations. But another useful way to understand neoliberalism is as a political and class project, specifically a project to discover new zones for capital accumulation. Um, and ESCOM is demonstration of what results um, uh, from the neoliberal project. So for most of ESCOM's history, its mandate was to deliver cheap um, energy and specifically cheap electricity for the mining, uh, the mining and energy uh, complex in South Africa. So South Africa's um, ability to industrialize, its ability to um, you know, accumulate vast amounts of wealth in order to enhance development, obviously for a specific uh, portion of the population, resulted from the availability of cheap uh, power through ESCOM. And for many decades, ESCOM operated essentially on a not-for-profit basis. Um, it was a public service that was meant to give South Africans and businesses cheap electricity and not really meant to run um, for a profit. However, from the 70s, as I'm sure some members of the audience are, are aware, we begin to see a collapse in the kind of capitalism that arises after World War II. So you have the 1973 um, oil crisis, and that produces a situation where the costs of supplying energy and producing energy begin to ramp up. And this affects the South African situation, where at the same time, from the 70s and in the 80s, there's an incredible amount of political instability. There is the economic isolation of the country as well. And uh, the oil crisis, the, the subsequent global recession, combined with South Africa's economic isolation due to sanctions, means that the apartheid government then begins to try and find ways of reworking ESCOM in order to have um, energy security, but also importantly, energy independence, um, and in order to sort of like reduce the rising cost of tariffs. And what results from this is the de Villiers Commission in 1984. And what the de Villiers Commission does, reflecting the, the, the neoliberal trends that have begun in Margaret Thatcher's United Kingdom, in Ronald Reagan's America, um, in Chile, and generally South America at this time as well, it um, initiates the corporatization of ESCOM. So ESCOM is changed from a not-for-profit uh, public utility into a public utility that must operate on a commercial basis. Um, its management board begins to change as well. And for the first time in ESCOM's history, you now have representatives from the private sector, representatives of capital who have influence over the operations and the financial uh, running of ESCOM. And that process of commercialization, of, of having this public utility function on a commercial basis speeds up um, when the ANC abandons the sort of egalitarian framework for running an economy in 1996. So once apartheid comes to an end um, and the ANC takes over the reins, uh, what ESCOM what does, as you mentioned, they pursue a huge elect electrification uh, program. However, with the adoption of neoliberalism by the ANC, um, and the heart of that idea, I think the heart of ANC's, the ANC's neoliberalism is that, well, look, the free market is efficient at distributing resources. The free market is efficient at being able to generate wealth. And so we're going to use it as a mechanism to generate wealth and, and then hope that that wealth will trickle down towards the unemployed, towards the precarious, and towards the poor. Of course, through certain interventions by the state as well. But it's that, it's that old school um, neoliberal idea that um, if we give entrepreneurs and business in the private sector freedom, it's going to be able to unlock wealth and we can deal with joblessness, unemployment, and poverty. And so what the ANC then does is they begin reimagining ESCOM and further corporatizing it. So in 1998, you have the, the white paper on ESCOM. 
And that paper uh, functioned as a mandate to inform the government's approach to energy. And this is in the same decade that you see the push for energy privatization across the developing world as well. And so um, in that paper, it even says that, you know, uh, we envision 30% of uh, power generation coming from the private sectors. And that was a mandate already pushed on as early as 1998. But, e but more importantly, ESCOM approaches governments with a problem. They say, look, we've just connected millions of people onto our national grid. The population is growing. Um, we're beginning to see some economic growth as well the demand for electricity is not going to stop rising and we are going to need to build power stations in order to be able to meet supply however the ANC government at the time due to the you know the mandate pushed forward by the ESCOM white paper says no look um the private sector is able to step in if we as the state uh begin amassing funding and directing public investments into ESCOM is going to disincentivize the private sector and the mechanisms of the market will give us electricity uh, that has a stable supply, competition will drive down prices, et cetera, et cetera. And so we need to give the private sector space to build the infrastructure and amass the capacity to give us new power stations and give us more energy outputs in order to meet demand. And ESCOM warned the governments as well. They said, look, if we don't build more power stations to meet demand, we're going to run into a situation where supply will be scarce by most likely 2007. Lo and behold, to late 2007, load shedding hits the country for the first time. And even Tabum Begi, I think this is the first time he's admitted being wrong about anything. Um, Tabum Begi even admits that like, look, ESCOM had told us about this we were wrong, ESCOM was right, and we need to invest in more generator capacity in order to meet demand. So the corporatization of ESCOM isn't simply just a bad and short-sighted policy choice. It is a deliberate attempt um, to create new zones of, a, of a commodification in order to create new opportunities of accumulation for the private sector. And that policy choice came directly at the expense of um, ordinary South Africans. Because another problem that we have is not just poverty, but specifically energy poverty. There, about 43% of the South African population does not have safe, reliable, or affordable access um, to electricity. And the kinds of moves made by the ANC in the late 90s to appease the private sector, um, to sort of pursue their you know, neoliberal economic practices came directly at the expense of the South African uh, public. Um, but not only that, in 2001, ESCOM becomes a limited liability company. So ESCOM truly changes and becomes a public utility that is run like a private uh, corporation or company. So well, it's not just them. As a, a Paris state, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as, uh, as, they, as they like to refer to it. And um, I mean, look, that was a huge part of neoliberalism in South Africa. It was about creating public-private partnerships. Um, and it was about not just having the state retreat from delivering services, but remolding the state to protect property rights, to protect the ability to commodify and accumulate and to manage the political tensions that are going to result from the project of neoliberalism. Um, and the one very critical thing that changes ESCOM is the full cost recovery model, and we can go into that. That's probably the biggest piece of its corporatization as well. Um, yeah. What is it exactly? So, so the full cost recovery model uh, adopted in, in the early 2000s, specifically 2001, says that um, again, this is about introducing the mechanisms of the market into the public service and into the public sector. The full cost recovery model says that ESCOM must sell electricity to the end user. So that being, uh, you know, citizens, businesses, etc. And through the sale of electricity, it's going to make a certain amount of profit. It's going to receive a certain amount of revenue. 
that revenue will then be used to manage its daily operations, to maintain its uh, national grid, and to invest in building new generator capacity, to essentially invest in building new power stations. So very much like a business, FCOM is going to use its profits to recuperate the cost of uh, production. Now, the problem that you face when you implement that kind of model in a country like South Africa is its unsustainability. It's not sustainable. So right now, about 18 million South Africans live in extreme uh, poverty. Um, that means around about 1.90 US dollars a day. Um, if you look at the full definition of unemployment, we probably have about an estimated 14, 15 million people who are unemployed. And then you have a huge amount of the South African working class that is casual or precarious labor, what some people refer to as the working poor, people who make just above the minimum wage and can barely survive, people who, if they were to face a medical emergency, would be flung into extreme poverty. So you cannot expect a population that is mostly poor, that is mostly unemployed, to be able to um, essentially subsidize ESCOM um, through paying electricity. And the problem it presented with ESCOM was that as the years went by in the country, as more people became unemployed, as more people fell into poverty, ESCOM's streams of revenue began to drastically narrow. And so now ESCOM is faced with a problem where increasingly they do not have enough re revenue to be able to do the kinds of thorough maintenance that you need to do. Um, to also to be able to build the kinds of new infrastructure that you need to, to, to build more power stations. Um, so again, it's this, it's this problem that I think is being faced by energy systems around the world. Um, Mexico is beginning to retreat from privatization. The UK is having a big contentious debate right now about uh, the privatization that began in the, in the 80s um, as well. Uh, and so... It's an unsustainable model where ESCOM needs to rely on the end user to be able to keep it financially afloat and to use as a resource for maintaining itself and running its operations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, again, it's another choice that was made by government that came at the expense of the public good and, and uh, most ordinary South Africans. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because, as you just concluded now, the trend internationally is mm. a shift away from privatization and towards renationalizing or partially nationalizing energy provision. Mm. But in the midst of the crisis here in South Africa, it seems like privatization or, well, deepened privatization is what's on the horizon as a widely accepted solution for how to fix ESCOM. Even looking at the most recent announcement by South Africa's finance minister that ESCOM is going to get another 54 billion rand lifeline, that's attached to conditions and conditions which only fast track what is known here as unbundling or the separation of ESCOM's different divisions um, under different um, actors. So why, why in spite of the tremendous failure of corporatization is privatization still pursued as the solution to address the extent of the crisis? It's, it's something that is, I mean, it's really interesting to behold because in South Africa, you have a very weird kind of situation that's been unfolding for the past um, 27 years where the, the, the government very much speaks, I think, in emancipatory vocabulary and progressive language. Um, and the government has done a lot of public relations work to present themselves as a government of a developmental state. Um, and then on the other hand, you have a, a sort of a corporatized media structure that 
is that very much operates reflecting the ideological interests of the private sector. But if there's, there's a, there's a, there is a, a diversity in the media space. You do find progressive and radical voices, but you know, they're far and few between. So you, on the one hand, you have a government that speaks in progressive and emancipatory language. You have a mainstream media structure that often um, is the voice, sort of the mouthpiece or, or the voice of um, the private sector in many ways. And when those two things converge, there is the common perception that what's led ESCOM to fail is the fact that the state has this monopoly on energy. And the state having monopoly on national assets is often going to lead to inefficiency. It's often going to lead to corruption. It's often going to lead to bad experiences for ordinary citizens. I think what the problem is that there isn't enough thorough policy discussion and thorough discussion about the legislation behind ESCOM and the real ideological and political interest that it actually reflects. But another thing that's perhaps more important is many people do not believe in the capacity of the state because that capacity has been drastically withering over the past um, 10 to 15 years. Um, so you move from a state pre-1994 that um, is quite capacitated, um, but obviously it's capacitated to do oppressive and exploitative things. And so the idea was to develop a developmental state that is going to balance the interests of the public and the private sector. It's going to use its instruments to help human development in terms of dealing with poverty, education, healthcare. But the reality is the ANC has cultivated a neoliberal state in many ways, a state that functions to, as we said before, protect the market, um, protect the interests of the private sector, um, and also like manage the political tensions that result uh, from the contradictions that we have. However, another development begins to occur is the rise of pervasive and very intense corruption. Um, so in the national government, but also within many sectors of the political elite, the rise of corruption um, results in the state losing resources and importantly, the state losing capacity and also the, the, the state's priorities being misdirected. Um, recently, it came out that a contract um, for uh, traffic lights in the city of Durban in the province of KwaZulu-Natal, which was initially flagged to cost about 92 million rand, um, was inflated to the tunes of hundreds of millions. And so there are people on either side of those kinds of contracts who are going to benefit. But in the meantime, those traffic lights aren't going to be properly fixed and resources that could have been spent on essential public services like uh, water and healthcare are going to be misdirected somewhere else. So the state increasingly is losing its capacity to deliver on the basic goods, not only due to neoliberalism, but also importantly due to what is referred to here as state capture. I'm not a huge fan of the term state capture, but um, the idea that um, interests that are not concerned about democracy and the public goods are using the state as a zone and an instrument of personal uh, wealth accumulation and also using it to build networks of patronage and networks of political power um, also used in the interest of uh, accumulation so it is really a class project that is emerging um, alongside neoliberalism as well and I think all those factors converge to give people the perception that, look, ESCOM has failed because the state has failed in every other aspect. Um, the only thing we can rely on is the private sector. I mean, I was talking to a friend recently, and um, usually in South Africa, we do our identity documents at Home Affairs, the Department of Home Affairs. But now banks allow you to do your passports and to do your um, identification documents because banks realize that the state is being inefficient with this um, thing, and there are people who are willing to pay for the service to be expedient. That kind of process is happening with ESCOM as well. But that assumption of the private sector's efficiency um, is one that's rarely explored and rarely critiqued or confronted. Mm, mm. Yeah, um, there's a crystallizing agenda 
against the idea of state provision altogether. Mm. And you know, part of that is is rational. I think people just see crumbling state infrastructure and ability everywhere. Um, and part of that is is the consolidation of uh, pro business agenda. But I want to talk about what you just flagged now, which is corruption in South Africa, which is coterminous with a class project, one particularly directed at propping up uh, a black elite and mm. using that as a transition to now talk about whether or not ESCOM or South Africa in general is well positioned to address mm. the climate crisis. Much has been said about the role of the minister for mineral resources and energy, Gwede Mantashe, and his particular attachment to mm. coal um, as a transitional fossil fuel. And South Africa has been dependent on coal for the bulk of its history. Um, and in order to properly countenance climate change, it needs to move away from that. Um, is Mandashe's push for temporary continued reliance on coal cynical? Um, is in the interest of all those actors who stand to gain? Um, is there some credence to that? Uh, and then generally, what is South Africa's plan for the just transition, mm. if any? <laughs> Um, I mean, look, um, I think Mandash's commitment to coal is the confluence of, uh, on the one hand, there are, South Africa's economy is, again, it's an interesting situation where, you know, you have an established uh, private sector that accumulates capital through the conventional, you know, means. Um, and then on the other hand, you have this economy of, uh, of, corruption and patronage that's developing. So definitely on the one hand, there are many people within the political leaf in the private sector who are committed to coal um, as a place where they know they can get profits and they know they're able to accumulate there. Um, and there's a concern about green energy being able to challenge them and crowd them out. Um, on the one hand, there is also a real concern from the public about whether we have the capacity and the political interest in initiating a transition um, in terms of, uh, again, the question of state uh, capacity. Because really in the past, underneath the Ramaphosa's presidency, what you've seen is the government consistently laying out these um, plans, whether it's about our railway system, whether it's about our police service, whether it's about ESCOM, but demonstrating they don't have the ability to implement those plans and to follow through with them and to report back on them and to give us progress. So there is concern about our ability to, to implement the transition. In terms of plans, um, South Africa has laid out one. Um, it's called the Just uh, Transition Partnership um, and the Just Transition Investment Plan. So the government has acknowledged that, look, climate change is already a reality we're facing. Uh, in terms of destructive outcomes. Uh, we had devastating floods in KZN um, in the past uh, several years, but especially in the past two years. Um, there's also concern about potential droughts uh, in Kaoteng, and there's a series of concerns about what's going to happen in the country if we go beyond the threshold of 1.5 uh, Celsius global warming. So the government acknowledges climate change as a reality, and they acknowledge the severity of it as well. However, the government is launching something that is deeply concerning, um, I think, for progressives and radicals and working class people. And it is pushing a transition to renewable energy and a low carbon economy through the market. Um, mm. and, and it's following a trend that's been happening in Europe um, and that's beginning to be launched in the global south as well, Vietnam. I believe, has also entered into a just transition plan. And how this plan works essentially is, look, we're going to have electrical vehicles. We're going to explore green hydrogen. 
um, we're going to build wind and solar uh, and, and solar power farms, et cetera, et cetera. But we're going to get the financing to do this from the private sector. Um, so there were about eight countries that agreed to a series of grants and loans in order to help South Africa finance a just transition as sort of like a launching pad to provoke more private sector investment. Um, but most of the just transition investment plan, plan is through loans. And there are many concerns that are being raised by, um, by, by trade unions, by civil society, um, by grassroots environmental activists as well. Um, one of the primary loans, uh, one of the primary concerns is why is this financing coming from the private sector and why is this financing in the form of loans? Um, because those loans essentially, they have to be paid back with interest, but also um, those loans have to be paid back in foreign currency and that concern. And those loans come with certain conditions as well. The World Bank and the IMF, which are partners in the Just Transition Investment Plan and Just Transition uh, Partnership, the World Bank and the IMF have um, made it quite clear that the initiation of a transition is going to entail the unbundling of ESCOM and the creation of a energy market in the country. It is also going to entail what they call structural reforms, one of which that was highlighted in their reports was labor market flexibility. So essentially, the World Bank, in order to seduce investments into the transition, wants labor to be weaker, wants labor to be easier to be fired, um, and wants labor to be cheap. Um, and it's also going to entail deregulation in terms of re removing certain environmental protections that have always been frustrating um, for transnational corporations that are pursuing their developments um, in the country as well. So there are concerns about whether these loans, and the AIDC envisions this, that these loans will weaken our economic sovereignty, uh, not only because of the conditions that these loans come with, but also the fact that when you open up, uh, and you know, when you open up the energy sector to uh, private sector investment, what you're going to have is a national asset like energy being in the hands of transnational corporations and big businesses. Um, so what should be a public good is going to be further um, uh, commodified. Um, but of course, perhaps it's, it's just important to explain what is meant by the unbundling of ESCOM before we go further into like the, the, the just transition plan. Um, and the plan is, so, so currently ESCOM handles generation, um, transmission, and distribution. Those are the three hearts of ESCOM, making power, transmitting it through power lines, and of course, um, distributing it amongst local governments, what we call here municipalities. So the plan is, is to break up those components of ESCOM and have ESCOM survive as an independent company that uh, operates uh, that, as a transmission company, essentially, that is going to buy and sell power to um, uh, buy power from, gener from generators, but also sell power as well to end users. And the idea is that FCOM is that transition, transmission company will then compete with other businesses in the energy market. And in hopes that this competition will lower prices, that it will, it will increase um, efficiency and also increase affordability uh, and access for um, citizens as well. So the just transition, the, the, the transition to renewable energy is very much tied with the end of ESCOM um, and the transformation of our energy sector into a, competitive, uh, into a competitive market. But another concern, of course, the just transition that many people express is that there was a lack of consultation about this, that there is this huge plan to transform one of the pillars of the economy and essential stakeholders, such like fossil workers in the fossil fuel sector, were not consulted. Uh, communities that are going to be infected by uh, affected by infrastructure projects were not consulted. Um, this plan simply arrived on the doorsteps of South Africans. Um, so there are many concerns about, you know, how can government take such a huge shift and not consult the most valuable uh, sectors? 
but also how can government also put itself in such a difficult financial position by taking out further loans and not consulting um, the South African people. But there's also other concerns about whether we can trust the markets to lead the transition uh, in the mm. first place. Mm, mm, mm. Could you say more about that? Because I mean, at, at face value, one can only be skeptical if, if you think about the huge capital outlay required in providing electricity and the yeah. fact that the primary incentive for any private actor to do that is generating profit. Um, and mm. it's unclear in this climate of uncertainty whether or not um, that can be the case. And even, even since regulations for independent power producers have been relaxed, the installed capacity that they've offered to the grid has been very little. Um, there's been, um, you know, there's a lot of noise made about um, the willingness to to take up um, generation and installing capacity to the grid, but there's been, been very little uh, of that in, in actuality. So, um, you know, it's, as you were saying earlier, in the discourse, much of which is dominated by um, an agenda favorable to private sector involvement, um, coupled with the disillusionment of the state, all of these advantages are, are pushed forward of, of why private sector generation will be advantageous to South Africa's economy. You've mentioned some of them, such as competition, which is supposed to be meant to drive down the price, uh, the fact mm. that you can sort of much more quickly eliminate um, Players, so on and so forth. Um, why does that not strike you? Why are you not convinced, Andile? <laughs> why, why do you not see the virtues of, of the private sector? It seems also also good and well. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a question that you know we should be asking ourselves more often. Again, it goes back to the point of. Um, I mean, look, people understandably don't trust the state. It, it, it makes sense their daily experiences don't inform that. However, you know, let's turn back and look at the international situation again. For the past 20 years, what's been good to see is a increasing acknowledgement of climate change as a reality and the need to change our economic system in terms of where we get resources, how we produce resources, how they're consumed, et cetera. However, even though there's been an acknowledgement of climate change, even from the fossil fuel industry and from the governments which often implement their interests, the hope was that, look, if we're able to, to invite and seduce private sector investment in green power, you know, in different forms of renewable uh, energy, we're going to solve this issue. All we need to do is create the conditions that invite investment it's going to be profitable, I mean, in terms of making it profitable, and we can begin to incentivize consumers as well to change their habits. But in fact, over the past 20 years, uh, the research that's been produced by different civil society organizations, such as trade unions for democracy, has proven that what we are not seeing is, uh, is a, we're not seeing an energy uh, transition, but we're seeing an energy expansion. So the demand for energy globally has risen especially in the past seven years. Um, but renewable and you know, renewable or green energy is not outpacing uh, fossil fuels uh, and conventional forms of energy. Uh, but it's in fact, it's, it's slightly lagging behind it or growing alongside it, but it's not outpacing it. And also what we've, what, another thing that we've seen that contributes to that is that investment in green energy has been stalling over the past, um, uh, seven years, and it's a problem that South Africa is likely to encounter, which is um, that it's incredibly expensive, as you've said before, to invest in this kind of energy. Expensive to the point that most companies are realizing that they aren't able to recuperate profits in order to cover the cost of their investment. So what we what we we've been seeing and what we've been seeing in Europe. Um, and what we're going to begin seeing in South Africa in the next several years, most likely, um, is the states increasingly having to subsidize the private sector 
in order to keep them attracted to the prospect of green energy. And you see that in South Africa with power purchase agreements, you know, these agreements with um, uh, private generators that last up to 20 years um, and that are a huge cost um, uh, uh, for ESCOM um, and a huge cost for, for, for the government. And again, it's raising the question of, look, if you have something as essential as electricity, if there's a need to change the way we use energy and way we produce uh, energy in order to not only meet people's needs, but to begin adapting to climate change, is the profit incentive a good mechanism to do that? And I think increasing the world is realizing that it's not because the profit incentive is, again, it's about maximizing your returns. And if returns aren't maximized, then private sector actors won't be willing to invest not because they're cool and sadistic, but it just doesn't make business sense for them uh, to do so. So, you know, people have written uh, increasingly in the past months that like, look, if you are going to continually subsidize the private sector to the detriment of the public purse, and importantly, to the detriment of ESCOM in terms of it being able to remain financially viable, um, then you're going to run into a situation where the, the transition won't be um, thoroughly uh, initiated because the costs are simply too high for the private sector and there aren't enough returns, but also fossil fuels are still incredibly profitable um, as well. That's also a deep concern. In the same year, uh, last year, that you have the United Nations saying that, look, we're going to have to have a drastic transformation of our political economy the world over. In that same year, you have Shell um, and Total bragging about how much money that they made in the final quarter. I can't remember the exact figures, but it, it was astounding um, how much money they were making as the renewable and green industry, industry is also beginning to stagnate in terms of its profitability and in terms of the amount of investment that's going in. Mm. So, how what what is the alternative you know what what could possibly be a public pathway that rebuilds escom's generation capacity to to a sufficient degree to meet energy demand and that takes us on the steady road to to decarbonization because i think you know if you could if you could make the pitch what would that consist in because as has been a through line throughout this conversation, very little people trust that the solution to fixing ESCOM is actually for the state to be more involved, uh, but to be involved in a in a discerning in a discerning way. Um, so, what does that look like? I mean, it's a it's a tremendously difficult task and something a tremendously difficult thing to ask of the South African people, because, you know, we've seen what the state has achieved in, um, in the past, uh, you know, 27 years. But essentially, the, the pathway that we're proposing is to say, look, what has caused ESCOM to fail are a set of bad policy choices that can be described as neoliberalism, but, you know, those policy choices have led to corporatization They've led to ESCOM accruing a huge amount of debt. Um, and other developments have also led to ESCOM being incapacitated by all the corruption and the different criminality that's going on there. So we need to have targeted uh, approaches to those specific problems. One thing that we propose is ending the full cost recovery model. It simply doesn't make sense in a population where so many people are poor and unemployed to expect a national utility to use revenue um, in order to be able to maintain its operations and do the work that's needed on its fleet, and then to also invest in new generative capacity while also dealing with its debt. So there needs to be an end to the full cost um, recovery model, and government needs to come up with new measures to give ESCOM sustainable funding. One of those measures is firstly going to be dealing with ESCOM's colossal debt. I think ESCOM's debt right now some estimates put it at a uh, um uh for over 400 billion 
um, our estimates put it at like 390 billion rand. It's quite a huge amount of debt. Um, and as Coma accrued that debt, uh, one big feature of it was a loan from the World Bank of $3.75 billion uh, back in 2010. And this loan was used to, for the construction of uh, two power plants called Madupi and Kusile. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, corruption between um, one of the companies that have been contracted to do work and the ANC's investment uh, firm uh, led or was the first step that led to that project taking a very long time and also running into many issues in terms of cost, et cetera. Um, so we're saying that, look, in that situation, the World Bank was aware of the inappropriate relationship between the ANC and the company that had been contracted, Hitachi Power, to build uh, uh, boilers at uh, Madupi. Um, and the World Bank had been accused previously um, in the US, I think at a 2017 hearing, of its suspect relationship with developing countries and how it was fostering uh, corruption through outsourcing and through some of its policies. So one thing we're saying is that we need to seriously consider canceling that debt because it doesn't meet standards of legitimate debt according to international law. It, is, it can be categorized as odious debt in the sense that the loan was not in the best interest of the lender. It wasn't in the best interest of the South African government or in the best interest of the African people. And both parties were aware of it. So there needs to be a political campaign needs to be built. Um, to put pressure for that loan to be dealt with. Um, and we'll talk about political campaigns as well, because I think that's a huge feature of uh, uh, fixing ESCOM. So there needs to be measures of dealing with the World Bank debt. Secondly, there also needs to be measures of dealing with ESCOM's overall debt. What the government has currently done is give ESCOM a series of bailouts. And so the government takes a portion of its resources from the national budget, and they use that to bail out ESCOM in order to keep it financially afloat. However, just like the Thatcherites that the ANC have become, they then use that as a justification to cut spending on healthcare, education, basic services, and social protection under the guise that, look, you know, our levels of debt are unsustainable, we need to appease credit agencies and we need to appease uh, domestic and foreign investment. And so we need to reduce government spending. However, it's always towards the public or the social good. So we're saying, look, that needs to end. It can't be a situation in which you keep ESCOM afloat while it's tethered to an unsustainable model. And then when you do that uh, solution, it then takes away money that is vitally essential for ordinary South Africans to be able to survive. More South Africans need healthcare, more people need education, more people need basic services and social protection. So what the AIDC and our partners have proposed is that, look, there is the possibility of creating a sovereign wealth fund in order be to, to confront the crisis of ESCOM's debt. And one of the sources of that fund could be um, the government's uh, a pensions fund, which essentially operates, um, it, it, it operates in such a way that it's been able to accumulate a huge amount of surplus over the past 27 years. Um, surplus to the tune of, I think, 2.1 trillion um, uh, rand. Um, but also it's accumulated so much surplus that it would be, it, it would be able to cover people's pensions going forward into the future if government was able to tap um, into that resource. But also by international standards, um, it, the amount of funds that it's able to cover, I think it, it has to have a coverage of about 90%. Um, and it, 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 it exceeded that um, quite far. So we're saying that you're, you should be able to tap into the pensioners funds in such a way that you wouldn't harm people's pensions, that you would be able to sustain um, uh, that fund, but also importantly, you wouldn't tap into the national budget and take away vital resources from the public good, such as healthcare and education and uh, so on. We're also saying that, look, South Africa is a very weird country in that we're the most unequal nation in, uh, in the world. 
And yet, if you look at how we tax the rich and how we tax the wealthy and corporations, it's negligible, really. Um, the ANC has been very scared. Sorry? To the extent of being grey-listed is how negligible our... our <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, it, it's shocking um, how much wealth leaves the country, how much wealth is being hidden in the country or hidden in other places. Um, so the ANC has been very scared of confronting the wealthy in South Africa. And we're saying that it's high time that the wealthy who use the resources of this country, such as the labor of its people, to be able to get to the position that they're in, it's high time that the wealth beginning begin to pay um, for the place that they have um, um, in the society, or rather for the amount of power and wealth that they've been able to accrue. So we're saying that South Africa needs to introduce a progressive tax framework. Um, and one of those would be a tax on the, um, on the rich um, and a tax on corporations. Uh, we've reduced our, tax rate, our corporate tax rate quite drastically since um, 1996. So there needs to be a return on those kinds of measures. So the, the ability to fix ESCOM very much relies on not just changing the policies towards ESCOM, but changing a lot of macroeconomic policies that have been implemented since 1996. And one of those policies has been increasing uh, you know, tax relief and, and tax reductions for the rich and, and uh, corporations as well. Um, it would also include an end to austerity. You cannot rejuvenate the public sector if you are unwilling to strategically spend on the public sector as well. Um, so the ANC since about 2013 has progressively reduced spending on the things that uh, I've mentioned before. And one of the reasons why they have not been willing to give ESCOM sustainable funding is because they're committed to the unbundling of ESCOM and not disincentivizing the private sector um, for com from um, coming in. But one of the most difficult things, I think, and we're beginning to realize this with news of how deeply entrenched criminality and corruption is at the utility, is finding ways to generally confront corruption. Um, not just in terms of bolstering the capacity of the judiciary and of our legislative framework, but also looking at, okay, on a, like, like how do people do this? What are the processes through which these happen? And one of them is outsourcing. Um, the state increasingly outsources um, its duties and its tasks um, to the private sector. Um, and this has also led to it being able, uh, losing capacity, but that relationship allows individuals to come in, to inflate contracts, um, to set up tenders with individuals that they know of, or tenders within networks of uh, patronage and um, uh, corruption as well. So we're saying that, look, if you're going to fix ESCOM and do deep maintenance and you build new power stations, these things need to be publicly procured. Um, not only that, there needs to be a great amount of transparency um, uh, about these uh, contracts for manufacturing, and et cetera. Because one thing that's a huge problem with these contracts as they've occurred is that they're so secretive, is that we aren't aware of the, the fine details behind them and the actors involved um, in this kind of criminality. Um, so we need to take a deeper look at the political economy of corruption and say, what are the actual processes that people use to be able to accrue this power? And how can we um, end it? I think that's the first step to rebuilding state capacity. You can't rebuild it if you don't um, take away, you know, the individuals and the organizations that are draining the state's ability uh, to deliver uh, services um, in the first place. Andila, I think that's a, a great note to end on. Rebuild state capacity and everything will follow. Um, and thank you so much for coming on to the program. No, thanks. It's, it's, it's been great. It's been great talking. I've been chatting with Andile Zulu, who is a political writer who's contributed to Africa as a country before, and he's also the Energy Democracy Officer at the Alternative Information Development Center. Do subscribe to AIAC Podcast. 
Uh, leave us feedback wherever you listen to your podcast. But most importantly, head over to africasacountry.com to check out new writing on politics and culture on the African continent from a left perspective. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Sing.